Beautiful. At this time, remain standing with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word, which is going to be starting in Romans 16. We're going to read the last verse of 16, that previous section, and then we're going to hear 17, 17 through 24. Uh, let's read it together. Uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So we got here the wrap-up of the world's greatest book, Romans. Romans is one of the, probably the most influential book for me in the Bible. All the books are inspired, of course, are God's word, but some are more important than others. So this is one of those highly important uh, peaks of the Bible we see. Now, as you look at this one, you'll see that uh, he, he name drops again several people who are going to be coming to them. Timothy, uh, who we know uh, wrote 1 Timothy. Uh, Tertius here, or Lucius. Lucius is probably Luke, actually, who traveled with Paul. Uh, Tertius uh, wrote the letter. Now, Paul's dictating the letter uh, to Tertius, who's writing it down. So that's, uh, you know, that. So he's got all these people he, offer, he offers up to them to warmly greet. He's already told them to greet all these uh, people that he knows in Rome. Uh, he's, he's listed 26 names, nine women, and 17 men, and some household churches there. He really has a comprehensive vision for this. Hey, we're all in this together. Uh, we're all in Christ, and that's our fundamental identity. And so we love those in Christ. We take care of them like they're on our body, their own body. So I was thinking about myself here. As I go to the gym almost every day, sometimes I miss a day, but I go to the gym and I see all these people in there. And I look at them, I'm just like, uh, no one talks to each other in the gym. It's like everyone's kind of like looking down, looking away. It's sort of awkward to, to talk with one another, right? And so I, I, I just, I feel like I need to change that game because like everyone is, is sort of, uh, you know, like they're, they're not, they're, they're just, it's sort of like, it's awkward that we're not talking. I mean, I'm standing there doing preacher curls next to someone else and, and they're not even, they're like ignoring me and I'm ignoring them. Uh, so you know, it's like, why would you do such a thing? It's 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 odd behavior. So uh, Paul here says it's sort of unconscionable that we would look at each other and not greet one another. He's saying greet one another with a holy kiss, right? Because uh, in the most part, everyone in the gym is actually there for I would assume good motives, right? They're trying to get in shape. I mean, trying to uh, take care of the body, get some cardio in, and uh, you know, get the get the muscles built up so you can you know live better, right? These things. That's that's the reason people are there, right? So as you, as you think about that, uh, why, why would, you know, like, what if there are people there that actually want to kill you? 
Like they want to, hey, let me spot you. And then they press the bar down on you, like as you're benching. Like, they're, like that would be absurd, wouldn't it? You wouldn't see that happening in a gym. It's just like it's sort of, you sort of assume people have good intentions and motives there. Uh, and, if you, and you see in the visible church, uh, you, uh, when you're talking about the church now, you're like, like uh, you just assume everybody there is uh, for the right reasons a lot of times, right? You just assume that that's going to be the case, right? But it's not always the case. And so Paul has a very sober warning that within the church there will be those who, as John says, who appear to be part of us, but were never among us. They were never really a part of us. Uh, the Hebrews would say that these people have fallen away. They've re-crucified Christ in Hebrews 6 uh, by, their, uh, by their rejection of him. And there's, there are truly people, people who identify visibly and out externally with the church who have nothing to do with Jesus. And you see that, uh, this is a very, uh, you know, important final exhortation. Because uh, if the, the Lord has an enemy, and it is the devil or Satan, he is defeated, of course, uh, but he is still active. He's like the, the candidate uh, of an election who uh, all the votes have been counted, uh, and he's defeated, he or she is defeated, but uh, this person will not concede. Uh, the Satan will not concede. He continues, though he is defeated, to use every last ounce of his being to, to try to undermine human beings and God's glory. So we're going to look at that today because you see that uh, there's this uh, people who cause divisions, who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Now, this is, this is not just schisms or uh, that we need to all get along or be kind to one another. Paul's concern is divisions that are caused due to the screwing up of doctrine, by missing doctrine, by messing up the doctrine and misleading people about the doctrine. I've told you guys before that the thing that keeps me up at night uh, in, in considering preaching and teaching the Scriptures is that I might teach the wrong doctrine. Uh, it, nothing more dangerous for me in my calling uh, is to do so, is to teach the wrong doctrines or to, or to create obstacles for you to Christ and burdens for you to bear in seeking Christ. So I want to uh, be uh, clear about what the concern here is, not just that people get along, because conflict is inevitable. Uh, divisions are inevitable, and it will come, because the, the gospel is offensive, and, and Christ does divide, but we understand that there are people in here that are not on the same mission. Uh, people in the church that are not on the same mission, they're serving, as he says in verse 18, their own appetites. So point one here in your thing is that, you know, Paul's identified uh, that there are some in the church working against Christ, and we need to be discerning about that, that there's going to be inevitable attacks from these people against the church. The visible church is going to be attacked from within. Uh, and this is no surprise, right? Because if you look at Romans 6 and 7, uh, we're talking about sanctification, is that the greatest enemy is not actually outside of us, but it's within us. It's our flesh. It's this uh, abiding sin, a remnant of sin that remains in us that is against the gospel that we must put to death because we're in Christ. We're to put it to death, show it no mercy, and kill it. It says in Romans 8. So the, the, the greatest enemy is within so yes, it's inevitable that that will happen, and there's people working against it. It's like every plot of a Mission Impossible uh, movie, right? It's, there's always somebody who's a mole or working against the mission, and that makes the impossible mission even more impossible. They've got you know, more problems, right? 
So the mission impossible is going to be even more problematic because we have people inside working against Christ. And so he describes his people as they're, they're, they're serving their own appetites, not the Lord Jesus. Uh, and so uh, one, one marker of this is uh, when, when Paul describes himself at the very beginning of his book, he calls himself Paulos, an apostle, doulos of Christ, or servant of Christ, or slave of Christ. He, he wants to make note from the very beginning he is a slave or servant to Christ. He does the will of Christ and not his own. Not, not, not that which would uh, you know, endear him to popularity or, or whatever um, would earn him acclaim. Uh, he actually becomes more or less popular, actually less popular uh, as he, uh, with some as he uh, does the will of Christ. So these people, he says, are serving their own appetites, not Christ, as he says in verse 18. Uh, it's, and in Philippians 3.19, he says that their gods are their bellies. Uh, as we said, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus says that, because we innately take care of our own bodies. We innately care for ourselves. So we're to care for others as we care for ourselves well, they're missing that. They don't have the, they don't have the connection to Christ. They don't have the, the, the impetus to do so. They just serve themselves. This is what he says. So point two here, he's going to give us advice out of his genuine love for his people. When you love people uh, and you want, to, you want to protect them. So he wants to protect the Romans from, the Roman church from this disaster. Uh, and so that's a great example for all of us that we speak the truth in love uh, to our brothers and sisters to uh, protect them in such a way. This echoes uh, Jesus' words exactly when it says, uh, it says in verse 19b, it says, I want you to be wise as to what's good and innocent to what is evil. Jesus says that we're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, right, in Matthew 10, 16. It's good advice. Uh, if you're thinking about gaming, I want you to be like level 1,000, you know, wisdom, effort, put it in. Put in all the effort, be skillful in the game uh, uh, regarding, in verse 19, uh, what's good, wise as to what's good, and innocent as to what's evil. Uh, you know, J.B. Phillips, a commentator, says that it's like I don't even want you being a beginner. You're not even level one. You're level zero. You're not even, you never even play that game. You're not even going to enter into what is evil. Uh, be innocent as to what is evil. All right, so that's going to... Uh, echo, uh, I think this, uh, as you see this, he gets through 19 there, and, he, and, he, and he, uh, it echoes Jesus, but then it, look, at, look at verse 20, it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I think that's a very succinct summary of our hope, right? It's like the, this God of peace who brings us peace with God is going to crush Satan under our feet. Now, Satan's active, but uh, he's going to be crushed. This is, a, this is a non-negotiable, this is a promise, this is going to happen. Now, it's a guarantee. As you look at it, uh, He's brought in Satan to end the letter. Uh, the, he names this devil or Satan at the end of the letter. I would argue that he does the same thing in Ephesians as well. And a much more memorable and, and probably well-known passage, if you, if, you, if you would indulge me, I'm going to read Ephesians 6.10 and hear this. Ephesians 6.10, just for our edification. He says, finally, he's closing his letter to the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of your feet, uh, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. Now, Paul is given, given us subtlety that these attacks of the, uh, or subtly has given us assurance that the attacks of the devil will not be effectual. They will not accomplish their purpose because the Lord will crush Satan under your feet. Here he says, in the meantime, to the Ephesians, be strong, put on the armor of God. What is the armor of God? It's Christ's armor. Christ has already fought the battle. He's already slayed the enemy, the devil, and he has defeated the devil. So we take up his armor and put it on now. His righteousness, his faithfulness, the faith which is looking to him. And this will extinguish the flaming darts of the devil. So how is it that we're going to do this? Well, we're going to take up his word so we can clear on the doctrine, not unclear on the doctrine. So at this point, we're going to have a sermon within the sermon. Okay, three points on who the devil is, what he is, that is, what he's doing, and what is his status. Because you need to know this. This is three things about the devil. What is he? What is he doing? And what is his status? So first, Satan in the Bible is a predominantly, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, employed to describe the character of an individual and the role he is performing, rather than a proper name given for the one doing the action. Uh, the word Satan is employed to describe actions that are obstructionary, oppositional, and accus accusatory. This, is the, this guy has op uh, <laughs> uh, oppositional defiance disorder. He cannot get along. Uh, he must go against the Lord's will in all ways. Okay, so uh, where this is uh, used to describe uh, a celestial being, the actions of that being are usually uh, ambiguous, right? So uh, in, the, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was, all this, uh, there was all these ideas of divine councils where the gods would meet together and they would kind of hash out what's going on. There'd be intrigue there. They'd kind of be like undercutting each other. Uh, now, the Bible speaks in that way sometimes about a council, eternal council of God, but it's never like the pagans talk about it. It's always with the sovereign Lord reigning over all the heavenly beings that he's made. Uh, they're, not, they're not equal gods, but they're uh, sub-creatures here. Uh, and the, there's these angels of that regard. So uh, you see, you see uh, Yahweh is always in the chief position. Uh, God is in the chief position. He's sovereign. You see this example, uh, the best example of this is in Job, Job 1 and 2. If you've ever read this book, it's amazing. I remember being in youth group and hearing this for the first time when I, was, I became a Christian later in, in high school, and for some reason in God's providence, this is probably the first thing I ever heard about in the Bible, which is Job 1 and 2. And I was like, what in the world? Is this normative for today? Like, what is going on here? Because what it is is, is there's, a, there's a council, that, that Job, Job 1 presents a council, and uh, that uh, you know, Satan is at the table, uh, the Satan, the Satan is what it calls it. And uh, there, there's a, all the members of, uh, of this council. Uh, he has this role uh, of investigator or tester or prosecuting attorney. 
It says that he's going to go to and fro on earth and test the character of those who love God. And so it says, uh, God himself uh, speaks to Satan and says, Have you considered Job, my servant, and his blameless character, his unblemished devotion to me? And so Satan responds that he doubts the integrity of Job. Uh, and so he, uh, he, he doubts the motives of Job. And so he proposes to test the character of Job. And God allows this, right? He allows the Satan to go and put Job on trial to accuse him, right, and to, to destroy his life. And then Job passes that first test, but then the second test is even worse. Destroys himself. It's more severe. And you see that after those first two chapters, Satan kind of recedes into the background. There's a bunch of speeches uh, amongst Job and his friends and uh, and then they get to the Lord uh, counseling Job at the end, right? And so you'll notice in that story, though, that the satanic uh, character uh, in that, uh, that satanic character is always, uh, so, you know, subservient to the Lord's will. Uh, remember, it's, it's God who draws Job's attention, uh, Job's attention of Satan, the Satan, right? So he says, have you considered Job? Satan doesn't have unlimited omniscient knowledge. He's a created being. He doesn't even know Job, right? So he's like, look at Job. Let me show you somebody who, who believes and has integrity. God points him out. Secondly, uh, Satan outlines the nature of the test for God, but then it's approved by God. God approves it. The limits are set by him. And Job, uh, he is just doing this to, uh, the Satan is just challenging God's assessment of the character of Job. And he's working on under parameters set by God himself. You see several other times where Satan, thus Satan, accuses or seeks to dismantle God's people. Uh, one being in Zechariah 3 and one being in 1 Chronicles 21. I don't, have, I don't have all the time to go into all these things, but the key place where Satan is mentioned in the Old Testament is in Genesis 3, of course. He's the one who brings temptation into the Garden of Eden. He's more crafty than all the, all the beasts. And, and once the fall is done and completed, what verse is that we always talk about at this church is always said almost at every, every meeting is 315. God looks at Satan and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the New Testament, that we see is the fulfillment of that promise. We see the fatal headshot to the enemy of God, which is Satan, the serpent. The fatal headshot, he's defeated. So Satan is this sort of ambiguous character in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he's everywhere, and he's hostile towards humanity. You see it in uh, the garden, I mean, not the garden, but the wilderness. Satan leads Jesus, or Satan, uh, when, when Jesus is led out in the wilderness to be tested, Satan attacks Jesus, his vulnerableness, and seeks to duplicate the sins of Adam and Israel in the, in the Savior, Jesus Christ. But, but Satan is defeated in the wilderness. You see that Satan is uh, described by Peter as roaring aloud around like a lion looking to devour his prey uh, in 1 Peter 5, 8. We're even looking at our session with studying the uh, attributes of an elder this last week, and an elder of a deacon, and, and we were 
discussing it and studying it and looking at the First Timothy passage. And, and even then, it says, hey, the man who's an elder must not be a, a recent convert, lest he be uh, easy prey for Satan. Uh, Satan is even, he's everywhere. He's all over the place in the New Testament, under everything. And here he is just name-dropped at the end of the name-dropping chapter of, of Romans 16, 20, because he is present in the church as well. He's not only testing character of people like Job, he's driving them to evil. And without God's protection, we will be given over to it. Uh, that's why we pray uh, in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. We need God's help. And this, uh, as you think about that, uh, the, the, the way, when, the, when the Satan is defeated, uh, which I'll say he is defeated, uh, you know, it's his status now. Uh, so he, so he's, uh, so that's that's our final point here. So what is Satan? He's an he's an angelic being, a celestial being, who is oppositionally uh, opposed or, to God. Uh, secondly, what is he doing? He's roaring like a lion. He's seeking to devour his prey, and he's trying to bring havoc in the church. And then, uh, what is his status now? Well, I want to point you to one last uh, place that I think is helpful. It's Revelation 12. Revelation means make clear. Uh, it says Revelation 12. It says a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon, a red dragon, the ancient serpent, uh, with seven heads and ten horns. On his head were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is a scary story. Yeah, it's a scary serpent who's looking to devour a newborn. It says in verse 5 of chapter 12 of Revelation, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was as a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for the time. See the next, uh, next verses. It says, now, this, now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. So what we see here is in 12, 1 through 6, that was about the cross and resurrection. The woman gave birth, the, state, the Satan tried to devour it, but he was unable to. He failed, and it was caught up, and he would rule the nations. Now you see a heavenly perspective on what just occurred. A war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and the angels were thrown down with him. And now it says, a loud voice was in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brother has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they, it says, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have not loved their lives even to death. Therefore, O oh, rejoice, heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O oh, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now, as you consider that, do you, do you, I mean, I know it's a long passage. We're in the middle of a sermon here, and you've already been listening for quite some time. But what it says there is the devil knows his time is short. He has fallen in this heavenly war that went on while the cross and the resurrection are occurring. He is knocked down to earth, thrown down with his minions, 
And the devil's come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He seeks to destroy you even from within. But all of his plots will fail. All of his plots will fail. It says in 10 of Revelation 12, uh, salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. The accuser of our brother has come. So when we're thinking about uh, he has been, the, king, the accuser of our brother has been thrown down and defeated and that you, the church, have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. As you consider that, you consider how certain this is. That Jesus says, even in John 12, that this is about to occur. occur. He says, Father, glorify your name. The crowd said uh, right there and heard that, that, he, that uh, Father, the, and Jesus, Jesus calls out to heaven, Father, glorify your name. And then, and then the Lord's voice thunders down. And he says, listen to him. He says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd in John 12 says, uh, they stood there and they heard this voice thundering down from heaven. And they say, and Jesus says to them, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. It says now, now this judgment is on the world. Now that the world, ruler, of this, ruler, ruler of this world will be cast down. Now the ruler of this world will be cast down. Right then and there, Christ is going to go to the cross and cast him down. So it says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show them what kind of death he's going to die. So the death of Christ destroys the devil, and it will draw all men to himself. The cross will draw all men to himself. And we need to have a uni unity on that doctrine of who Satan is, what he is, what he's doing, and what his status is. He is defeated, but he has not conceded. He has not conceded the election but he is defeated. He is crushed, right? Show that picture if you have the, uh, the deal. This is the picture uh, of an Egyptian pharaoh, as I said, about to smite his enemy. He has that axe in his hand, about to take his defeated enemy and crush his head. This is what the Bible's about. The enemy is, is on his knees, uh, defeated, and the, and the next event in history is the great crushing of the head, the final and full consummation of the kingdom of God where this defeated enemy will be no longer. The divine warrior, our Lord Jesus, battled this enemy, has, has destroyed him, and we have no right letting him dwell in our midst. We're to crush him, destroy him underneath our feet, as God says we will do. He says, he will crush Satan under your feet, this God of peace. He's brought peace with us, and he's going to do that. That image needs to be in our minds as we read the Bible. This evil sort of man, the Pharaoh, destroying and subjugating his enemies is what Paul viewed his story as, is that when a conquering king leads a procession of captives behind him, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that I was, that's me, I'm in the procession. And I, I was a former enemy. I persecuted Christ, but he saved me. He crushed Satan that I might be forgiven, that I might be uh, redeemed, that I might be justified. And as he says, I, I'm led along in this procession toward the death, toward the death of Christ, toward my own death. As you consider that, that is your story. You, uh, your defeat is in this. Christ has become that so that your sins would be completely forgiven, that Satan would have nothing to accuse you of, 
And he can only cause you trouble by dividing you in the body of Christ through confusing you about who Jesus is. So he wants to, to get you confused about the doctrines of Jesus. A couple of ways. He confuses you about over-realizing the promises of Christ and under-realizing the promises of Christ. First, over-realizing the promises of Christ. He will tell you that if you just have enough faith, you shall not suffer. He will tell you that if you just believe harder, you shouldn't worry about suffering. That's what people tell you. They over-promise, and that's lies from Satan. That's not biblical. That's not doctrine of the Scriptures. In fact, Jesus tells us we will suffer. These are just basic things. Jesus came in the flesh, not that we might have our best life or, or an easy life, but a godly life, a holy life. Uh, that would be, uh, it would just change our desires uh, to be about being with Christ and not receiving all the things we thought we needed before Christ. So as you think about this, we are led along in this train, uh, oftentimes to our death, in order that we might cast out Satan, drive him out, crush him. Because as he couldn't kill Jesus, he couldn't destroy Jesus by his death, neither can he destroy us. We will conquer through the blood of the Lamb and through the testimony of his word. We don't kiss or greet Satan. We don't kiss or greet sin. We put sin to death. We militantly put sin to death. That's our calling. Uh, we don't kiss or greet the visible church that's in the grip of Satan. We evangelize the visible church that's in the grip of Satan. We tell them the gospel. Because what the visible church that's in the grips of Satan wants us to do is not talk about Christ and the gospel. So we say things like, Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus died and rose from the dead, and all who confess him will be saved. All who confess him as Lord will be saved. Those simple things, we tell them that. Just tell them those things. It will infuriate them. Because they're like, oh, we've already heard that. Let's get to doing good works now. No, that is the thing that we need to tell them. And when, they, when we tell them that, they will get mad because they may be in the grips of Satan. Satan cannot bear to hear this. Jesus came in the flesh, he rose from the dead, died for our sins, and all who confess him as Lord will be saved and forgiven. The enemies within the church don't care for those statements. They don't want the church to make that their agenda to spread that message and to serve that message. So, so we might over-promise the gospel by misleading people. We might under-promise, right? We might say that the, we might lead people to believe that Christ is not enough, that you need to add your works to Jesus in order to get out of hell or purgatory or whatever it is we're holding over you in order to control you. It says here that these evil people in the church were serving their own agendas. Why they want to control you? They want to control you, and they and they do that by fear, manipulation, and guilt. They want to make you feel like you're guilty for something. We have to, you have to come to us and we'll give you the knowledge and the, and the deliverance on the basis of Christ. That's a lie. It says through the blood of the Lamb and through the testimony of His Word, you will be overcomers. But the devil knows that if he's to lead you astray, he must lead you away from the Lord Jesus Christ and His blood. But as he's done, he's disarmed the rulers, his authorities, and the powers of this world and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. He is kneeling on the ground, defeated and with the knife or the axe at his head. He is defeated on his knees. We cannot let someone who is defeated trick us into believing we need anything other than this king who is reigning. 
to save us. Your salvation is in Christ alone. But Christ has not saved you from suffering yet. He will one day. There will be no more tears, no more pain, no more struggles in that regard because the heavenly Jerusalem will descend and there will be no temple there, but the Lord himself will be in our midst and he will heal the nations. Uh, Martin Luther has uh, instructed us to go to war with Satan in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And we, wanna, we don't want to kiss those who are in the grips, uh, the grips of the enemy. We, wanna, we don't want to greet them as we would a brother and sister in Christ. We want to evangelize them. We want to be aware that the evil, enemy is evil, so are evil and active. So let's, let's, if you will, let me read this, to, this hymn to you really fast. It's called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's very provocative. It says, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. He says, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the God, the man of God's own choosing. And ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Because he never changes, we will not be consumed. Third, through this, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. The body they may kill, but God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. Friends, we must preach 1620, Romans 1620 to ourselves. It says that the Lord, the God of peace, will crush Satan under your feet. You will be standing with Christ, crushing Satan under your feet. And what happens after the victory? The meal, the celebration meal, the joy. The wedding feast of the Lamb. We are celebrators of His grace. We are picturing as a people uh, the unity of the body of Christ where we gather around the Lord's Supper as we will gather around the Lord Himself in the last day. Uh, the one who conquered Pharaoh, He did it. Not through military might, uh, but through His lavish love for his people. Let's take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to bless us.